Welcome to the Complete Sinner's Guide, your guide to all things biblical. My name is Noah Chalaya, your host. Delighted to be here with you. Joining me, as always, is our co-host, Tyler Fowler. Tyler, welcome to the program, brother. Thank you, Noah. How are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing great. So this is an exciting episode because we are going to talk to a presidential candidate you've heard in the mainstream media. The various different political candidates and Joe Biden, Donald Trump, it's almost as if America finds the worst of the candidates that we have to offer and then puts those at the center stage. And there's a lot of really good, solid Americans out there that are running at we're bringing them to you. Tom, welcome into the program. Tom Hofling is a presidential candidate for 2020. Well, thanks, gentlemen. It's great to be here today. Thanks, Tom. We appreciate having you. So I guess let's start with this, Tom. You, uh, you're you running against um, two very popular candidates in the United States. Obviously, you believe that you bring something different to the table. So what is the what is the difference in your brand? Well, I tend not to talk in terms of marketing, but uh, generally, but uh, I'm nothing like the uh, candidates of the two so-called major parties. Uh, I'm on a long-term mission uh, to try and save the country. Um, I, I believe I know exactly how we got in this mess that we're in as a country, and I believe that I know exactly the only way that we can get out. And, and uh, yeah. I was just going to ask, where is your source of truth, and 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 where do you where do you get your worldview from? Can you talk about that? Oh, for sure. Um, the, the The foundation for my personal belief and my personal life is exactly the same as the foundation for my political philosophy, and that's the Bible. Uh, there's just there's no other foundation that you can have that is going to get you where you need to go. So, uh, you know, I believe that I'm, you know, right in line with the men who founded this country. Uh, they were, generally speaking, Christians of an orthodox uh, sort of character. Uh, there might have been a few oddballs here and there theologically, but generally it was a country that was overwhelmingly Christian, and it was overwhelmingly Bible-based in, in their belief. Uh, so, you know, in terms of turning the country back from the destructive road that it's on and putting it back on a path that uh, will allow our children and our grandchildren to uh, survive and to thrive and to prosper— uh, the first thing you have to do is you have to, the country has to turn back to God and repent. I, I said at the very beginning of this campaign, you know, our real campaign slogan is simply repent. <laughs> now, when I say that, that's not really directed at the heathen. Right. Uh, it's really, truly directed at the Christians in this country. Uh, you know, they, Gallup still says that like 70% of the American people claim to be Christians. We know that a lot of that is cultural, whatever. We could argue all day uh, about what percentage of Americans truly are born-again Christians in the biblical sense. But the fact is, if even a fraction of those who call themselves Christians would repent, would stop supporting wicked candidates, would stop supporting uh, public policies that uh, try and regulate abortion rather than stopping it. Uh, if, if the Christians would stop compromising, uh, the, the road back for this country would be clear. It would be fairly reasonably, relatively simple. We, we could practically turn the country around overnight. Where do you think Christians are compromising today? Well, I mean, we're seeing it in spades with Mr. Trump. I mean, I'm just going to be as blunt as I can be today, uh, gentlemen, about uh, my opponent. Uh, I mean, this is the most—he's a reprobate. This is a man who's the most wicked man that has ever walked on the American political stage. There's nobody else that's even close. Uh, Looking back through history, the only person I can find to compare him to is Nero. Mm. When you you look at the— 
at the presidential base, and I guess this is kind of why I asked where you where your worldview stems from, because I I I I, I think I understand where you're coming from, Tom, um, from the standpoint of when I listen to when I listen to the current president speak, I don't often get the idea that he is influenced by Jesus and his life is guided by Jesus, and Given the opportunity, I think we as Christians have an obligation to take that into account when we're electing leaders. And I think our political system, and frankly, I think a certain part of our political system really pushes um, our faith to be separate from the governing body of our country. And I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. Does that play at all into your role um, to step up and say, I'm willing to lead the country? Well, in the first place, it's been crystal clear to anybody who's looking at things sincerely and honestly, that Mr. Trump knows nothing about the Bible. He knows nothing about Christianity. When asked, he could not name a single verse other than maybe an eye for an eye or something like that. He he doesn't know anything about our Constitution. He talks about judges signing bills and things like that. Uh, he's, He's ignorant of Christianity, and he's ignorant of what it means to be a constitutional American. Uh, as far as me, uh, you know, uh, you know, this understanding of biblical truth <laughs> is fundamental. We can't turn the country back. We can't save the country in the physical, political sense unless we turn back to our moral basis. This has been my message for 25 years. Uh, we don't have money problems. We have moral problems. And it starts with God's house. It starts with the church. The church has to stop compromising. You can't run around justifying, using moral, morally relativistic arguments to justify supporting a man who just this past week bragged that he was honored to be the most pro-gay president in history. Mm. I'm sorry, yeah. that just does not pass muster, either logically or morally that sort of support it just doesn't you can can tell it all let me let me let me let me ask you i want to ask you this if if um if if i if i if i can play devil's advocate for just a moment if do you think do you believe that there's any biblical scriptural value in the concept of you have a large portion of the population that that is not only, I would say, it's further than just alienated from God. I think that the very mention of God, the mention of the Bible, the mention of Jesus provokes anger, frustration, irritation, and defensiveness among a lot of people. Do you think that there is any value in 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 a leader coming out, Trump or anybody else, yourself included, coming out and saying, listen, if you have, if you struggle with homosexuality or or if whatever your chosen sin is, I still love you because that's what the Bible commands me to do. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this is what President Trump is doing by any stretch of the imagination. But um, do you think that there is value in a leader being welcoming and open to all of God's children but without compromising, without ever saying, like, it's okay for you to engage in this behavior. Um, separate the sin from the sinner. But do you think well, it's appropriate for the leaders to, to, to love those people that way? Well, it's one thing to love them in fact and in action and, and recognize yeah. that they're fellow, Ameri- they're, they're fellow Americans, they're citizens. They have God-given unalienable rights, true rights. In other words, the rights to life, liberty, property, the true rights, not not wrongs, okay, there is no right to do wrong, never has been, never will be. Uh, so you got to be careful there if you start playing that game of catering to them, i got, I got to say. Because once you do start to go down that road, you start to see what we're seeing throughout so much of evangelicism today. You're starting to see compromise. A little yeah. leaven leavens the whole lump. You just yeah, I... come right out and say, look, homosexuality is an abomination to God, okay? And the fact that our country is beginning to treat it as a positive good is a sign of our demise, okay? Look, I don't want to go out and do anything to homosexuals or any of that. I want them to back up and get, you know, get out of the public square and quit bragging about what's sinful. And quit force it down the throat of my, my family and the people that I love. Uh, just stop it. 
uh, we're losing not just our moral basis with this, but we're they're they're attacking our First Amendment rights. They're attacking. Uh, they're 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 going so much further than just the homosexual agenda with what they're doing. They're going to wipe out everything if we allow this to continue without fighting back as Christians. There's more of us than there are of them. Why why are we letting them run us? I don't get it. I think how we fight back is extremely important, and and and, and we talk to Noah. I love what you said, man. You said, "How do we love these people? How does a leader actually love?" someone who has different beliefs than them, someone who has a completely different lifestyle than them, I would say that you show a person love first and foremost by telling them the truth. The truth of the matter about homosexuality Amen. is that it's not natural. God designed marriage. To, marriage, let's think about it for just a second. Marriage comes from God. God gets to define the standard of what marriage is, and God has said it in his word, between one man and one woman, with, with with male and female genitalia. We understand what a woman is. It's a person who can have a baby, right? Like my wife, we have a five-month-old beautiful little girl, right? If homosexuality was was the majority, was it, say everyone turned to be homosexuals today, where's the family? Where where is where's our future at? It homosexuality in my opinion, and I think I can back it up with the Bible, has done nothing but destroy this country from the time it got started. It, it, that's it, Because here's the thing. If we're actively rebelling against God, we need to warn these people, look, you are in danger. You are in danger of hellfire, whether it's for eternity or not. There's a big debate about it, whatever. But you are in danger of losing your life completely, whatever that means. And if that's not love, if we're not willing to be honest with these people up front, then how can we honestly say, I love you? You know, uh, I have a pretty tight, concise platform, which I know you gentlemen have looked at. And, and of course, number one on my list always is turning the country, starting with the Christians, back to God, repentance, uh, back to the understanding that our rights come from God, not man, etc. Number two, we have to restore respect for the God-given, unalienable right to life of all. We have to restore equal protection under the law to unborn babies because they're being slaughtered by the millions. But the third thing is, is fighting to restore the civil institution of marriage. That is a fight that we've been in for years. And frankly, the Republicans abandoned the field eight years ago with Romney when Romney was nominated. They completely abandoned the field prior to Romney's nomination. The Republican Party had won state after state after state. They were profiting hugely electorally from uh, things on the ballot protecting marriage. And along comes Mitt Romney, and boom, suddenly it's not to be talked about anymore. And now the GOP is degraded to the point where, since the beginning of the Trump administration, you have a president, a Republican president, who is actively promoting the homosexual agenda, and he's proud of it. So so this is another reason. You asked me uh, why why I'm running. This is another reason to continue to remind people of... As you just said, God instituted marriage. He defined it. He he is in control of it. And if we're going to save the country, we have to restore that uh, because it's the basis of everything. It's the basis of – I always put it this way. If you go to the preamble of our Constitution and read each clause of the stated purposes of our Constitution, abortion destroys every one of those clauses. Okay? So does gay marriage. It destroys every stated purpose of the United States. You cannot fulfill those things when you give the country over to the homosexualists. It's impossible. And, and see, and I just want to make a statement too. If anyone, if anyone is, you know, when when, when we when we release this and you listen, if you think we're bashing on it, just homosexuals, no, no. The Bible speaks <laughs> probably more so about heterosexual sin. Um, and, and between men and women, fornication, adultery, right? So I don't want anyone to come away from this thinking that Noah, myself, or, or Tom, or, or the Complete Sinner's Guide in general, is just completely bashing homosexuals and we hate them and all this. No. No, absolutely not. That's, that's, a, that's propaganda from someone that, yeah. Anyway, but what, we, what we're trying to say is this, is that we love you. We're try, if you want to be a homosexual, 
I, I, I can't stop you from that. But what I can do, what I can do is tell you the gospel and tell you the good news and to tell you if you don't repent from this, if you don't turn from it, if you don't turn to God, and I, and I love your message, Tom, that as Christians, first and foremost, we do need to turn back to God. We all can repent. We all, we all should repent daily, right? Completely change our minds. Keep changing our minds. Being sanctified and washed by the word, right? So with that being said is that, no, we love you. Whether, whether you've committed adultery, I have. I've done that before, and, and I'm ashamed of it. But at the same time, I can say that Jesus died for those sins. Does that make it right to do? Absolutely not. He died for that sin, right? But we, none of us are perfect. None of us are. But what we're trying to do is get a starting point with God. So my question is, Tom, how do we convince people? <laughs> I mean, this might sound silly, but, but there's so many people that don't believe in God, that don't even acknowledge the fact, the fact that Jesus existed, let alone ris- rose from the dead. How do we convince people of this message? Well, well, first of all, it has to be a matter of Holy Spirit conviction. Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, we read our Bible, we read in the book of Acts, we, you know, we see the apostles out fulfilling the Great Commission. You know, they, they said what God had told them to say, and then the Holy Spirit took their words and did something with it. So, you know, I don't focus a lot on the heathen. Uh, as I said, I'm not out saying, you guys all repent speaking to the heathen, although I am as a Christian preaching the gospel. So they do need to repent, too. But, <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I'm trying to tell people, I'm trying to clean up my own house first, okay? Right. My own house being uh, the house of God, uh, the Christian. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. You know, look, if if the Christians in this country would get their act together, what the heathens did would be pretty much irrelevant politically. We would crush them like a bug, because there's more of us than there are of them still, at least in terms of, you know, professing Christians. Sure, uh, Noah. Do you got any? I uh, uh, no, I, not at least on the on the on that current topic. Um, I I want to talk a little bit about rights, Tom. Um, from your website, it seems like this is something that you really hold dear to your heart, and and something that you really believe comes straight from God. Um, where do you see the current problems in government as it relates to individual rights, and what would you do differently to fix that? Well. One of the things I'm careful to do, I got to say up front, is I do focus on rights, but always counterbalance first and more heavily by saying that with rights come duties. Mm. So, you know, I just don't want to be one of those guys running around laying claim to my rights, my rights, my rights, my rights, without recognizing that with that, each and every one of them comes corresponding uh, responsibilities before God and my fellow men and my fellow Americans. So uh, our rights, <laughs> when, when you have a, a Supreme Court that rules as they did uh, 47 years ago in Roe v. Wade, and then, you know, Republican courts, by the way, and subsequent mm-hmm. Republican courts that reinforced Roe, uh, they made a direct assault on the supreme right of a certain class of individuals. Every single person that has not yet passed through a birth canal uh, is is in danger. So that's the supreme right. Uh, you know, justice is often pictured as a woman holding a scale, right? The right. scale is to weigh out justice. And so the basis of that is just a simple acknowledgement, a simple understanding of simple right and wrong. So people say, oh, don't force your morality. Look, there's going to be somebody's morality somewhere, okay? And without a basic sense of Christian morality, you've lost the ability to appropriately weigh out these these very delicate matters <laughs> when it comes right. to government. So, right. you know, then we have to we have to weigh this right against that right. Uh, the right to privacy does not outweigh the right to life. Just because you have, do have a right to privacy, and you do, but it has limits. Uh, the right to privacy doesn't mean you can kill grandma in the bedroom in private. It doesn't mean you can lock your toddler in a closet until they're dead. So we have to weigh out these rights. 
and we have to do it wisely. And, and we, we have the capability of doing that. I have young children who can do it quite successfully. Right. Right. Um, Tom, I don't want to get off the subject at all. Um, I think we need to focus on it. But I've heard you say the word uh, a, a couple times now, and I just want to get your, your definition of it. But can you define exactly what a Christian is? Well, I define it exactly the way the, the, the Bible defines it. Somebody who's born again. There's really, you're either born again or you're not. You're either a Christian or you're not. It's really that simple. Right. No, I I agree 100. Um, percent Like like I said, I just wanted to you know get your um get get your definition on that. Uh, I think it's important I mean, that that all of us define I mean, terms uh, because look, mm-hmm. people 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 are born again, and does that mean their theology is always instantly perfect? No, yeah, absolutely not. not. You know, no. when the Samaritan woman at the well went back to town saying, you know, look at this man who told me everything I've ever done. Right. Okay. She was still a Samaritan woman, you know, who had had five husbands or whatever. Uh, she still was what she was, and I'm sure she didn't have somebody to go sit her down and give her a, a Bible college course. Right. No, I agree 100. So, percent I think theology has been. Don't get me wrong. Uh, we 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 love theology matters. Uh, I do too. I do too. On this don't as- take me wrong. No, I, I I get exactly what you're saying, but you're right. I'm still learning. I, I've switched my position on, on, on a couple non-essential things, you know, um, just in the past couple of days, to be honest. But I think the essentials, because we, anytime I go out and talk to people, whenever I evangelize, that's one of the first questions I ask them. What is a Christian to you? And, man, I can't tell you how many different responses I've got from being good per- being a good person to trusting Christ, you know, uh, all of these different things. But it, the Bible gives a very simple definition of what a true born-again believer does, and that's I, someone who trusts Jesus. Look, you know, <laughs> the first word uttered by Jesus in his earthly ministry was repent. <laughs> repent, Same exactly. Repent. Exactly. You know, change your mind, change your heart, turn back to God, line yourself up with God and what He, what His plan is, and that His plan is, and was, and is, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. And, you know, that's where you need to put your faith, and once you do that, <laughs> you are born again. Amen. So, you know, it's not, it's not complicated, but... Hey, no, it's very, very simple. <laughs> very simple message. Uh, sometimes, maybe even so simple, it's hard to believe, <laughs> really. But it is true. But, we, tr- we repent and we trust Christ. Our, yeah. The, the incumbent president, you know, I mean, Jesus told us, you know, they, the, the King James Version says, you know, judge sure. not. I think a better translation would be condemn not. We are not to judge people's eternal destination that's above our pay grade. Okay. However, I can look at Donald Trump and I can say, uh, I can judge. Mm-hmm. I can weigh out what do I think is his spiritual condition because he's told me flat out, I don't think I need forgiveness. Wow. So he's told me, I don't believe in repentance. And, and I'm sorry, but if you don't mm-hmm. believe in repentance, if you don't need, think you need forgiveness from God, if you don't think you need to bow down to God, you're not a Christian. It's just as yeah, simple you... as that. Yeah, I mean, you have to. Do you have to see your need for a savior, and that have to, that means you have to be willing to admit that you're a sinner. You know that that you have violated God's laws, that you have done all these things that we've been talking about. That Christians do need to repent from. That that, that even the heathen need to repent from. You know what I mean? Um, so I, yeah. I I agree 100 percent, man. I agree. Um, okay. Noah, you know, go. Oh, sorry, sorry, Tom. Go ahead. Well, I just want to say one other thing. I mean, you all yeah. have seen some. Some folks who have had some fairly unkind things to say about me this past week. And the worst thing that was said was Tom Hofling isn't a Christian. Tom Hofling has no public testimony of his faith in Christ. Okay? Mm. Other brothers came and provided absolute evidence that that wasn't true uh, on those various threads. I came along. I provided multiple, I think probably a couple dozen examples of my very clear, very biblical, very solid public expression of my biblical Christian faith. And it was just blown up. Oh, that's vague. There's nothing vague about anything I write. In my political work, every single day I testify to my faith in Jesus Christ, virtually every day. 
and you can just start scrolling back through my Facebook, if you don't believe me. You can mm-hmm. type in Tom Hofling and Jesus Christ in the search bar on Facebook, and you'll come up with dozens of hits of me expressing my faith. So I just mm-hmm. wanted to I wanted to throw that out, because that's been a, uh, you know, it's been a burn my saddle for the past week while I was traveling. Absolutely, so, no, and I appreciate that. Yeah, go ahead, Noah. Well, I was just going to ask, Tom, could you share with us your your story? How did you come to Christ, and, and what role did that play in your decision to, to make a run for the presidency? Oh, that's a big question. Um, I'll try and be as brief as I can, but <laughs> but my my troubles in life, brothers, started before I was born. Uh, my mother, back in 1958, uh, became ill after the birth of my older sister. And she ended up with severe postpartum depression and ended up in a mental hospital, frankly. And I was conceived on a trip home. I, I was born to take, she was taken from the mental hospital to the hospital where I was born, and I was taken to live with aunts and uncles. So I was kind of an orphan from an early age. My dad remarried when I was starting first grade. And we went back to the family home and uh, I was raised um, in a liberal church, a church of Christ. I was there a lot. My mother eventually, my stepmother, eventually fell into a cult, which was the Worldwide Church of God, Armstrongism. Hmm. Uh, my brother kind of fell into it. I never, whatever, I read my Bible from an early age. I never, for whatever reason, God protected me from it. I never really fell into that legalistic trap. I never really believed what they were saying. But when I was about, and I'm not sure the exact days, but I think I was probably about 10, I went to a Wesleyan church camp out in the, way out in the Great Plains out in Nebraska at the uh, headwaters of the Elkhorn River. And, you know, there was an altar call and preaching, and I responded. And no matter what you might think of whatever, but God, God touched me that day very, very powerfully. I went home. I went home telling my whole family, hey, I just got saved. And they pretty much scoffed at me. <laughs> right. Uh, they did, you know, they just didn't understand what was going on. But I did it. I got saved that day. Now, I had nobody at home to feed that. I had nobody to nurture what had been planted in my soul. Uh, and my family broke up when I was a teenager. I was on my own on the streets in Omaha by the time I was about 13, 14 years old. Uh, I was a high school dropout. Uh, my family broke up. I was living, I was on my own on the streets. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, for the next few years, that's, that's the story of my life. It's pretty, pretty rough life. Um, wow. it's amazing. I, I didn't get arrested. It's amazing. I wasn't, you know, dead. Um, yeah. So anyway, no, it definitely sounds I, like I, God I, was protecting you, my friend, for yeah, sure. In my early twenties, I got married. Uh, my first son died when he was a day old, which really wrecked oh, us. We goodness. weren't really living for the Lord. It just wrecked us, me and my wife. Uh, but soon after that, before, well, actually just before the birth of my daughter, Katie, uh, in 1986. The Lord just really got a hold of me. I'd been reading the Word. I'd been convicted, you know, whatever. But it was just one of those times when the Lord just revealed Himself to me. I can't explain it, but He did. And, you know, next thing you know, I was out telling the guy knocking on the door with the package about Jesus. That's awesome. That is so cool. You know, and it's yeah, I don't mean to interrupt, man, but it's just like I, I, I know exactly what you're saying because my story, just just real quick, you know, I was at work one day, and, and I ran to the bathroom, and I was just searching Jesus. I don't know. I was listening to, uh, to a sermon, and I was just searching Jesus. I was like, man, I, I, I'm at work, but I've got to figure this out. Did Jesus exist? And and the Holy Spirit just came into me, man. That, that's the only way I know how to describe it. And all of a sudden, the lights, the light bulb clicked on. And everything changed at that point. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And Noah, I'm sure you have a similar similar experience, right? Yeah, I th- I think uh, I I think the moment that you become saved, or the moment that that occurs to you, that you really understand, uh, frankly, and I, I'd be interested, Tom, you know, to to get your take on this. But for me, it was really a function of understanding the depth of my own human depravity. And once I understood that, then I was able to understand what a 
great gift salvation was from God. But I, I am interested, how, what, if any, role has that, has that seed planted in your heart had on your, um, on your decision to run for presidency? Did you, did you have a moment where you looked up and just said, I can't let the country continue down this path? And it didn't quite work quite that way. Uh, really, my my first real serious involvement in politics, I mean, I was interested uh, in politics for a long, long time, but really, uh, what really set me off was the rise of the Clintons, frankly, in the early 90s. Uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, going around saying, oh, you know, the things she was saying, I, I was... I became really scared for my country and, and my young, my young children. And, um, so that's what drove me to my, you know, I lived in Iowa here in small town, Iowa, when I decided I'm going to go to my first precinct caucus. And I went to my first precinct caucus and I got elected precinct chairman. And then I got elected, mm-hmm. uh, as a delegate to the County convention. And then I went to the district convention and I got elected to the Republican state committee in Iowa. And, And uh, it was serving on that, which is a pretty important role in Iowa because of the the first-in-the-nation caucus status. And so, you know, when you get into that position, this all happened very quickly. Here here come presidential candidates beginning to knock on your door. I mean, they want to stay in your spare bedroom, right? Wow. (laughs) Wow. And so, you know, one thing led to another. I ended up meeting uh, Alan Keyes. And back in the 90s, probably, even though even though he's Catholic, uh, a lot of people hear him speak and they don't even realize that. He sounds like a Baptist preacher or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but back in the 90s, his voice in the Republican Party was the one uh, calling out the compromise on abortion. Mm. Uh, some of your listeners may remember, I don't know how many of them, some of them may not be old enough to remember, but mm-hmm. in 96... Uh, James Dobson aired a speech that Alan Keyes gave in New Hampshire, and he just lambasted the other Republican candidates, who really were all a bunch of pro-aborts, frankly. And it was a powerful, powerful speech, and it was so powerful, the demand was so great, that Dobson played it on his radio show two days in a row. Wow. And so that's, you know, that's what got me interested in Alan Keyes. I ended up helping him in 2000. Um, I would say I was one of the key people that got him like the third place ticket out of Iowa to New Hampshire uh, through our grassroots politics on the ground doing the caucus caucuses. Mm-hmm. And so after that, I became his national political director and worked pretty closely with him for about a decade. Um, so, you know, I mean, when I started out, I would say I was pretty much your typical pro-lifer. But in the last 15 years or so, I moved away from that title, pro-lifer, because I've seen the complete uh, futility, the immorality, the unconstitutionality, the practical futility of the regulationist uh, kind of approach or strategy to abortion that the pro-life movement uh, has pursued for half a century and so I call myself an abolitionist these days. You know, I, I don't want to sit and brag, but I know that I've had a key role in the rise of abolitionism over the last decade. I, I know that some of the uh, central truths that are being promulgated by abolitionists, you know, were first dredged up in my front room through long bouts of prayer and study and research and everything else. I mean, it's just those who know me and have followed our work and been close to it, know that what I'm saying is true. I've played a, a, a key role in the rise of abolitionism. And I, it, if we can't make abolitionism go, if we can't push down compromised pro-lifeism, there's no hope for the country. There's no hope to end abortion. Right. No, I agree. Now, what's interesting, we was, uh, and you might have seen it, Tom, we were discussing on Facebook a little bit last night about abolishing abortion, and Corey Kent had made a uh, very interesting comment. He said that abortion... Um, will never be abolished in that sense, in, in the sense of there will be people always who murder their babies. What, if, if you were to get, to, if you were to become the next president, Tom, what would you say to those people who would 
who would go out and and murder their own baby any way that they could um just just for for selfish reasons um what would you say to those people um and to to well, I, I don't know if this is the right way to word this and, and forgive me for my ignorance but to to say to those people that you would win their vote or or that they you would get them to vote for you if that I'll makes sense yeah i'll tell you a quick little anecdote yeah uh you know people have an intrinsic knowledge of the truth okay we read about this in romans chapter one <laughs> amen. amen so even even leftist democrats down deep they know the truth mm-hmm. they know they know babies are babies they know murdering them is murdering them yeah. you know the, the the fact that people are people is self-evident mm-hmm. uh, we have an intrinsic knowledge of right and wrong my two and when my kids have been two or three years old they know the simple difference between right and wrong they know that it's wrong to kill little babies. They know that that children are supposed to have a mommy and a daddy, not a mommy and a mommy. Right. Uh, so, I'm sorry. Repeat the question. I got off on a tangent, and I just, no. Uh, no, 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 absolutely. Um, specific question. The the specific question was for the people who who are just at oh, adamant yeah. for abortion. Yeah, what would you say to yeah. those people? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the anecdote, six years ago when I ran yeah. for governor here in Iowa against our governor for life, Terry Branstad, you know, I was out petitioning. It was 30 degrees below zero. We were out. We had to get pens, uh, special pens, so that the ink would flow. It was so cold. Uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the uh, churches weren't willing to help because they were stuck in the status quo. Only mm-hmm. a few of the churches would help. So, you know, we had to get more help off the bar stool in some cases in terms of getting signatures than out of the pews. So mm-hmm. we walked into a, a pool room down in Des Moines. There was a young lady sitting at the bar, and I walked up and I said, hey, could you sign my petition? I'm running against Branstad in the primary. And she said, yeah, I hate I'm a liberal Democrat. I'll sign it. So she signed it. And I, we started talking and then talked about abortion. Mm-hmm. And, and she was saying, oh, I believe we should have a right to choose, blah, blah, blah. And I said, said, look, here's the deal. If I get elected governor, I'm going to have to raise my right hand and swear an oath to God to provide equal protection for the right to life of every person in the state. And that includes unborn children. And I looked at her. And she stared at me for, you know, in a conversation, a 10 minute, a 10 second pause is like forever. She paused for like 10 seconds looking at right. me and she pointed at me and she goes, touche. Mm. And that was the end of the conversation. So reaching those people, I, I said all that to, to point out, you know, people can be reached if you tell them the truth without fear or favor when you're honest with them. I often will get uh, atheist anarchists who end up supporting me. Uh, because not because they agree with me, right. but because when they asked me questions, I gave them very direct, very honest answers that I knew weren't going to agree with what they believe, but they, they appreciated my honesty, okay, and the fact that I treated them like a decent, normal human being and didn't look down my nose at them, okay? Right, right. No, so I agree. Those people. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's the way... It's the way we discuss things, and, and even living in a world where, where we're, we're so full of talking past one another, whenever someone who's actually willing to sit down and talk and discuss these things, we have to be clear, we have to be concise, we have to define our terms, we have to do all of these things, so we get the, 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 all of the little things that are going off in our head to get into the into another person's head you know what i mean and so and and the way we go about doing that i think you're right man i think it makes all the difference in the world the tone the way you speak to people and that's one of the things i'm struggling with too because i have a you know hard time especially with passionate subjects um you know i i get a little bit carried away sometimes um and i'm sorry for anyone who i've ever done that to um but uh in the in the couple minutes uh that we got left no how much time do we got left buddy about 15 yep 13 minutes 13 minutes um actually no do you got any more questions um i mean there's so much more we could talk about yeah actually (laughs) i i guess i want to talk a little bit about what some of the reforms tom that you're looking for so yeah um you know, oh, yeah. So, you know, there obviously everybody has their own idea of how to deal with the pandemic, the coronavirus, um, 
the you know Trump went into office promising to deliver a bunch of tax cuts. We got some tax cuts, but really nothing to to write home about. Um, obviously, I think whether you're on the right or the left, most people would agree that the government has become too involved in people's lives. What would you do to change that, or or or, or what are your plans to fix that? Uh, that's a great question. I'm glad that you uh, moved to these things for a little bit here so people understand who and what I am. I mean, uh, obviously, I prioritize my faith. I prioritize abortion and protecting marriage. Uh, I prioritize the right to keep and bear arms. I prioritize uh, our national sovereignty, security, and borders, because without those things, we're not a nation anymore. We're not a self-governing nation. But also, you know, we get down to the matters of governance, and we get down to the matters of money and economy and things. And for 25 years, I've been a proponent of completely getting rid of the federal income tax. Mm-hmm. It would solve so many of our problems. We would have no more messing around with 501c status, churches having to go hat in hand to government. Uh, it, it, would, <laughs> it would fix our trade problems. It would uh, stop our problems with government intrusion into our our, our business. Uh, we do so many things. We need to get rid of it. We need to replace it with a simple uh, retail sales tax administered by the 50 states. And no, I- uh, so that, that's been at the core. As far as we're – look, this is a moral issue, by the way. Money issues can and are moral issues. We are spending our great-grandchildren into oblivion. We are robbing them of their God-given, unalienable right to government by consent, by running up debts that this generation cannot possibly repay. Now, why are we doing that? It's because we have abandoned the Constitution. We have abandoned the strictures of the Constitution. We have vastly exceeded the enumerated powers. I have a very simple formulation for all public policy and laws and everything else. It's very simple. There's three simple questions that you use to test these policies. First is, is it moral? Okay. If it's not moral, forget it. Mm -hmm. Okay. The next Mm -hmm. question is, is it constitutional? If it's not constitutional, forget it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then the third question is, is it absolutely necessary? Mm. Okay. If it's moral, if it's constitutional, if it's absolutely necessary, then fine. Implement it in the most non-intrusive, efficient way that you possibly can. Sure. Absolutely. So, go ahead. So, look, our our economy. I mean, they've they've spent us. We are on the verge of national insolvency. The the Congressional Budget Office has been warning us for years now that by about 2025. The entire budget was going to have to go to pay these socialistic, unconstitutional entitlement, so-called entitlement programs and the interest on the debt with nothing left over for national defense or anything else. Okay, these multi-trillion dollar bills that they're passing with Corona are just pushing us even more quickly towards the precipice economically. Uh, We can be Venezuela, okay? We are not immune to the judgment of God. That's uh, so people true. ask me, what's the, most, what's the most serious national security threat we have? And I always tell them, continuing to offend God. Yeah. Uh, God can take us down, <laughs> and he can do it through droughts like we're having right now across the middle of the country. He can do it through storms, earthquakes. He can destroy our economy uh, at a word. Yep, and I think the more the more sin is promulgated, right? The more sin is just thrown in our face. I think that that shows God has given us. I mean, I think this is just my opinion that God has given us over to judgment. Whenever we start seeing, I mean, wildfires, hurricanes, storms that have been off the map, literally earthquakes, all these different things. Whenever we see sin mean, running rampant, you mean it's that, not global warming? Oh. No, no. Of course not. <laughs> of course not. Um, real quick, Tom, in the last couple of minutes that we got, I, I and, and anyone who's listened to this show knows this about me, I, I, I um, have been struggling or, or did struggle in the past with opioid addiction. Um, uh, taken care of now. Everything's going great um, with that. Um, I'm cool. glad that God brought me out of that. Um, my question is, 
what do we do about the opioid epidemic here? And does, and, and this is, our listeners love it, <laughs> or not love it, but I'm sure we want to, I, I want to know personally, um, how does medical marijuana fit into your views, um, especially with the opioid epidemic? Or, or do you think that that's just, that the two shouldn't even be brought up in the same, you know, conversation? Uh, I, frankly, I'm surprised that's the thing that came up in this particular yeah. interview. But, but <laughs> look, I hate, I hate drugs, okay? Yeah. Uh, I grew up in, in the drug, in the time of, you know, <laughs> the rise of use of marijuana, especially in sure. other drugs. I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. You know, I was part of that culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there worse things than marijuana? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, punishment should fit the crime, okay? Uh, however, you know, the answer to that problem is the same as all the rest of the problems. Turn back to God, okay? Yeah. Turn back to God, and you're not going to need to drug yourself up. Uh, you know, we can't afford to be a country that is in a drug-addled haze. Uh, again, you're going to destroy the country. If everybody's, if everybody's on drugs, mm-hmm. and we won't have a military, we won't have an economy— I mean, this is a serious threat. So I don't go along with the libertarians. I mean, the first question many of them want to ask is, hey, you're going to let me have my dope? You're right, right. And And I'm like, well, you know, government government exists (laughs) to protect the people. Uh, So the federal government has a role in, 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 uh, you know, preventing illicit drugs from passing over our borders. And those things. So, you know, a lot of libertarians don't like to hear that. But if they would really study a little deeper and really dig down, they would find that I am truly uh, someone who understands what true liberty is. And I am a fierce defender of true liberty. uh, Let me ask this, Tom. Do you do you um, I assume you support um, if if there are any drugs that are dispensed by a a medical provider or a trained doctor, um, would you support? the study and or uh, inclusion of drugs like marijuana as, you know, as, pres- as prescribed by a doctor? Well, absolutely. Now, many of the benefits of, you know, CBD oil and things, you know, it's questionable. But, but yeah, I mean, if there, they, God gave us uh, things for medicinal uses, and it no. should be used. Okay. The, the problem is, is that medical marijuana has been used by those who want to completely legalize recreational use of drugs, as the camel's nose in the text. I mean, this right. is just mm-hmm. a simple fact. And they've they've been very successful at it in the yeah. last twenty years. Yeah, and I, I, I don't think I don't think Tyler or I have a lot of sympathy or patience for people that you know. Oh, I stub my toe and go smoke a joint and I'll feel better. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, we're not, right. not that we're not talking about that kind. Of, but 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 there, I think there is a larger discussion to be had and a larger problem at play in the government, wherein by. We schedule a, a drug that has no known deaths associated with it as a Schedule One narcotic, right. and we not only prevent doctors from prescribing it, but we prevent universities, medical research places, from actually oh, investigating this claim. So what you're left with is this is this dysfunctional uh, society where yeah. half the people have a belief that this is a miracle drug, but they really have no evidence or scientific study behind it to advocate right, for that. Right. But we can't do the science because it's the government <laughs> has told us that it's so bad that we can't touch it. And I and I and I guess your view is it should be investigated, but it should be investigated not for recreation, not for fun. It should be investigated to treat actual medical ailments that have a, a scientific, uh, a reasonable expectation of recovery with use of that drug. I would say that, and I would also though say that if people are out there using it recreationally. You know, I, I don't want to see somebody thrown in prison for 50 years for smoking mm. a joint. Okay. okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, again, you have to, the punishments need to fit the crime, okay? Yeah. And, and you know, look, here's the thing, and I tell people this. I do, my focus, you go to my websites, whatever, it's not focused on vice. Mm-hmm. A drug use is a vice. Mm-hmm. I'm not focused on that. I got way bigger fish to fry. You know, do the people in a republic have a right to protect themselves against vice? Yes, they do. Okay, mm-hmm. more uh, mostly at the local level, that's where it should take place. Okay, uh, 
but that's I got bigger fish to fry. They're going to kill another million babies this year. Mm-hmm. Ex- right. Amen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 No, I so agree. I think. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, you know, with me bringing it up, you know, as being an active addict, right? You know, I think it's so stupid, so ridiculous to say, I'm going to get off heroin, but I'm going to put you on Suboxone, which you get addicted to. You go through the same thing. And I've even been to my pharmacy, you know, to get my prescription filled, to get off drug, to get off dope, you know, literal, I mean, heroin, you know, pills, all these different things. And I'm fighting pills with pills. You know, it's kind of like fighting drugs with drugs. You know, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't work. And there's much bigger fish to fry. I, I do agree. Um, Noah, in the last couple minutes. Yeah, I guess I would give it to Tom and just say, Tom, in yeah. in 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 just a minute or less, I guess you you one of the things that I, I've taken uh, from you in general over over the course of our conversation is you're looking to scale back government, scale back laws that are immoral, unconstitutional, un- unnecessary. Um, in a minute or so, just let people know who you are and why they should elect you for president of the United States in 2020. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to do that. Uh, we're running a truly grassroots campaign. Uh, we are locked out by the major parties. We have been impeded at every turn for years in terms of ballot access. Uh, I could tell you horror stories. I'm not going to take your time on the air today to tell you all our ballot access horror stories. But nonetheless, we are going to be able once again to make it possible for the voters representing about three quarters of the electoral vote to vote for our ticket. And we're doing that literally with no money. Okay. We are running a classic American front porch campaign. The one, the type that before William McKinley, that's how people got elected president. Uh, the, the candidate didn't do it. The people did it. They elected them. And now today, uh, people ask me uh, the last couple of days, Hi, uh, what's your strategy? And they'd say it kind of derisively. What are you going to do? You have money. You don't have money. You're going to do mail. You're going to do all these things, ads. And I say, no, look, you don't understand. This is our strategy. Our strategy is, number one, to get the Christians to repent of their support for a wicked candidate that's in office right now. That's the first thing. The second thing is, Look, every single one of us almost is walking around with a miracle communications device in our pocket or clipped to our belt. The most advanced uh, communication device that mankind has ever had use of. I'm talking to you on one right now. Right. And take it, use it, go find 50, go find 100 more Christians and drag them to the polls. And maybe if we can do that, we can get out from under this two-party yoke and we can begin to, you know, clean up this government and turn the country back in the direction that it has to go if our children and our grandchildren are going to have a chance. His name is Tom Hoefling, candidate for United States president. Thanks so much, Tom, for joining us. We'll see you back here next week.